Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome to this special federal legislative update and election preview podcast. I'm Dorothy Koshu, and I'm the Vice President of Communications for the California Association of Health Underwriters. I want to welcome today Marcy Buckner, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Association of Health Underwriters. Welcome, Marcy, and thank you so much for being here today to share your views and share your information with us. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're just so pleased. We're so happy. And just to remind everyone, we are recording remotely due to COVID-19, so please bear with us if we have any sound variations, external noises, and so forth while we record, because we've had some interesting things happen with remote podcasts. We've had dogs barking. We've had garbage trucks come by. We've had all kinds of things. Some things we can edit out, some things we can't. So just bear with us if you wouldn't mind. So Marcy, uh, before we get into the state of the nation and the elections, let's start with some successes in 2019, because because there were some pretty important ones. Can you remind our listeners about the very important repeals that happened in 2019? Yes, and it seems like so long ago, but it is important to make sure that we're celebrating some of these victories. And in December of 2019, in an end-of-year budget bill, and I'm pointing that out because it's going to be important later when we talk about what we could expect later this year, but in the end-of-year budget bill for December 2019, we had a repeal of the Cadillac tax and HIT tax, which together will save American taxpayers about $300 billion um, for the repeal of both of those. And the HIT tax repeal will go into place in January 1 of 2021. So if you are still seeing that on the bills, that's correct. But the repeal will go into place um, in, in 2021. And the Cadillac tax, of course, was never implemented. So that was a huge victory for us. Yes, absolutely. Well, we have a lot of things to talk about with this being a presidential election year. And we know that things are changing rapidly as we get closer to November. So let's start with an overview of what's been going on in Washington, D.C. over the past six months since we were hit with the coronavirus national emergency. Uh, I thought we could start with uh, Uh, COVID-19 legislative response. Can you update us on the phases of COVID-19 legislation? Yes, it has been um, all COVID all the time for us since March. And on the congressional side, D.C. acted pretty quickly in early March to get into a phase one bill out to try to put some money into the pockets of folks through um, a boost in unemployment uh, payments and then looking at ways through um, the Families First Act and then the CARES Act, ways that they could try to assist in providing more leave through the FMLA and then um, providing the Paycheck Protection Program loans, those PPP loans that I know many of you either applied for um, for your own businesses or may have assisted your clients to apply for them. Um, and so we saw um, the, the introduction of those PPP loans and then an additional bill to continue to fund them because funding ran out very quickly. And then after that, in May, Congress tried to come back to do a, a larger package that would be much more broad. And since then, they just really haven't been able to come to an agreement on anything. So we've seen a lot of activity through executive orders and then also through emergency rules on the regulatory side, really trying to patch something together where we haven't been 
seeing that from Congress. Yeah, it has been a whirlwind of legislation, a whirlwind of information coming through. And I'm sure it kept all of you in Washington on your toes for the past six months, as I know it has me. I've been trying to keep up with it myself, but I have to say I rely on Nahu to assist me. And uh, you guys are really been helpful on this. So thank you. Uh, Knowing all that's happened since, what's the current state of play for the next coronavirus relief package? Can you update us on this? Sure. And as I mentioned, the they really stalled out in May. The House was able to pass their HEROES Act, but the Senate is not aligning on that. The Senate then took up the HEALS Act, um, which has, does not have support to be able to even pass the Senate. So we're really seeing where they're just not having a meeting of the minds, both between the House and Senate and between Republicans and Democrats, on exactly what the next phase is going to be. Yeah. I know that there's some general areas of agreement in the two bills. Can you tell us what those are, um, where they're similar, and where the major differences are? Yes. So the similarities are they they can agree that they want to put more money out to state and local governments. The the disagreement there is is how much, um, and also agreements on providing more funding for testing, contact tracing, um, more, again, more money for those PPP loans, all of those things. Those are all of the top of the list that they want to try to do, but not actually being able to agree on that price point. And then with some of the major differences on the House side, they provided 100% subsidy for COBRA. And this was really important because of some of the emergency rules that came out that allowed for a longer period of time for the COBRA election period, um, which is extended 60 days beyond the end of the pandemic, which no one knows when that date is going to roll around. And then it also allows for a delay in payment for your premium and a delay in the notification going out from employers that someone is is COBRA eligible. And so with all of those emergency rules that, that are in place, it was really believed that Congress was going to act very quickly and provide that 100% subsidy for COBRA because of all the questions that come out when you have those emergency rules in place and concern that there there may be some actions by individuals that delay enrolling in COBRA until they do get sick. And then because they can retroactively enroll with all of this, um, these special rules, what will happen with claims and then what will happen with payments because of the delay for for premium payments, all of these really big points that we, we did provide to the administration and to Congress, both in responding to the emergency rule and then also to educate Congress on on why um, a possible subsidization of COBRA would be important. And so that subsidy is in the House bill, which would help to provide some relief and adjust reassurance to employers that in the long run, they're not going to be on the hook for possibly some, like I said, individuals that that are, are retroactively enrolling and racking up claims and not paying them, all of these different things. And so that's why the House was really focusing on including that in their bill, but that is not included on the Senate side in their bill. Another big difference is that the House bill also includes an allowance for a large rollover for FSAs, which we know that many people are not using those funds right now because of the restrictions on um, on elected surgeries and really having only in some areas, treatment is only available for on an emergency basis. And so 
we really were interested in seeing that larger rollover. The House bill allows $2,750 to be rolled over to the next year, but the Senate bill does not include a rollover for FSAs. There, there was an emergency rule that came out that allowed for an extra $50 of rollover. So the max usually is $500. This would allow $550, but that's not really what we had in mind, that extra $50 when we were asking for this, um, both in regulations and in rules. So we were hoping to see that larger amount rolled over so people won't lose those funds in their FSAs if they're not able to use them this year. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of information. That's a lot of stuff going on, <laughs> for sure. Uh, I know the the one of the situations that that came up uh, on my side um, is people were saying, "How are we going to be able to afford this if we wait, you know, six months or seven months to pay to uh, accept Cobra? Then we have to pay seven months in back payments, so we can't afford that." So that's that's a big deal, and and I can see why you were working so hard on that. Senate Republicans unveiled a new targeted coronavirus relief package, of course, including more unemployment benefits. Can you update us on this and? And did it move forward? It did not move forward, unfortunately. And and what they were calling this version, um, because it was different than the Heals Act, they were they were calling this kind of their their skinny or slimmed down version of the next coronavirus um, phase bill. And it, like you said, it really just focused on getting funds out and didn't really include m- much else other than that. And in the end, it did go to the floor for a vote. So it, it got that far and wasn't held up in committees like we've seen um, with the Heels Act where it hasn't gotten to the floor. And um, and it was voted down 52, voting against it, 52 senators, in, including some Republicans um, voting against that bill. So like I said earlier, it is really a battle between the parties and between the House and Senate trying to get any of this done. And then even within their own parties of trying to to come to an agreement on it. Yeah, I know. Big infighting. I can see that. The House Problem Solvers Caucus released a $1.5 trillion relief plan. What's this about? And what are the chances of that one passing? So this one also, unfortunately, doesn't have a huge chance of passing. And the House Problem Solvers Caucus is a bipartisan group of folks in Congress that so both Republicans and Democrats that work together, not just on the coronavirus, but on several issues across the board, trying to come to common sense approaches to um, resolving some of these issues and makes common sense that they would take up the coronavirus as one of their their issues that they've tried to work on. And, And here, somewhat similarly to the Senate skinny bill, where it was really focused on funding, it did similar things, but the funding amounts here are, are what doesn't line up between the, the Problem Solvers Caucus and, and then the, the Senate skinny plan. And the House side was, um, as you said, $1.5 trillion. The Senate bill was much less, about half, I think. And so that's really where we're getting down to is what what amounts are members of Congress comfortable with? And some of that has to do with the elections and whether they want to appear as if they are providing these large handouts, how fiscally responsible members of Congress want to appear and those senators that are running for re-election. And so unfortunately, that is is definitely in their minds as they're looking at these relief plans and Americans across the country are, are waiting to see if they will be able to benefit from any type of relief from them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the regulatory response to COVID-19. The Department of Labor and Treasury Departments released emergency final regulations, as you mentioned, 
previously regarding the COBRA election periods, the extensions, et cetera, due to the national health emergency. I know you kind of talked about this before, but can you update us on this? Has there been any additional information that we need to be aware of? So, and I do want to make sure that I point out that uh, members of NEHU receive a, an email every Monday that has all of the updates from what happened the previous week for anything related to COVID-19. So that's a great resource. We also have everything on our website and several Compliance Corner webinars that are available there if you missed them from earlier in the year going through um, just Everything that's happened from the PPP loans to FMLA and the COBRA pieces, all of those are covered. And what we have seen most recently from the administration, we did have initially through March and April, we were just flooded with emergency rules. And now they're going back and kind of cleaning things up. So we're seeing a lot of rules trying to tighten things up. We're also seeing rules, once again, going back to the PPP loans. And looking at some inconsistencies either in the, in the rulemaking or how the emergency rules actually are aligned with laws that were already on the books regarding loans and the Small Business Administration and the relationship they have with, with banks and institutions and getting those funds out. And we're seeing some revisiting there on um, exactly how an appeals process would work, how repayment works, even though repayment is allowed several years into the future, the agencies are already looking at ways that they can tighten up that language and make sure it is is very clear the process that you need to go through. They're also setting up a review process for um, for certain loans, specifically those that are over $2 million, and then other kind of checkpoints for them to audit and review and make sure that uh, the loans actually went to appropriate businesses um, and then putting in place a system to kind of deal and adjudicate with those that may not have been appropriate in, in ways that they can recoup those funds. So definitely going back and doing a lot of, of cleanup work with, with those and just making sure that the intent of those emergency rules is honored in the actual execution of them. Yeah. I understand NAHU submitted a list of suggestions to the Trump administration in April and in June regarding COVID-19 response. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. And some of the pieces um, are included some items I mentioned earlier, things like having that larger FSA rollover, cautioning about the issues with the COBRA extensions, um, especially in an environment where there was not, there are not subsidies available for COBRA. And then also focusing on employer reporting. And I think this is probably one of the number one questions that I get. I know specifically there are some folks in California that have been asking me about this and how the IRS and Department of Labor and Treasury and all of those agencies are going to deal with employer reporting and how employers are going to be able to, to do it. Because we're seeing a lot of employers with employees that they've had had to furlough or lay off. They're having variable hours. They're not working the same hours that they used to. And so they're going in and out of, of measurement periods. And it's very confusing to determine, especially if you are right on the cusp of being a small or a large employer, where you're qualifying there for the year and who it should be offered coverage. We have a lot of employers that 
may employ those emergency workers. So, and even thinking down to grocery stores and the clerks there that may not have been working full time. And now they are because they, again, they're, they're considered essential workers and looking to make sure that they are still in compliance with the employer mandate. And so we have asked for guidance on this. We've asked for relief on employer reporting for the time period during the pandemic, because we know it's going to be very hard for employers to go back and reconcile all of these things. They they did release some pieces that were helpful. They put an extension on the timeframe for Form 5500s. They allowed for Section 125 plans to permit a mid-year plan change where normally it wouldn't be allowed. So employers could change plans if needed to protect their employees. So there were a few steps that were taken here, but, but not quite as far as we would like to see. We also know that when it comes to employer reporting, there's a lot of concern, not just with the issues I mentioned earlier about employment status changing for so many employees, but also just the fact that some employers, um, the person that goes in and, and does all of this, that does the employer reporting, may not have access to the resources that they're used to using because they may not be able to get into their office right now if there are restrictions on um, going places in person in that area. There are also post office issues and you know the, the news covering the, the backups and mail delivery. There are also issues where an employer may not receive certain notices um, within the mandated timeframe to respond. So thinking of things like those 226J letters, we've heard that the IRS has backed off a little bit and sending those out. I think their manpower is, is focused somewhere else right now. But at the beginning of the year, we had um, several of those going out to businesses where someone wasn't collecting the mail regularly because they weren't able to access that. And it created a situation where they were, they really didn't have a full 30 days to respond to the letter once they actually received it, because the date that they received it was was much different than the, the postmark date on that letter. And then once they did respond, we're hearing that some folks, when they're calling the IRS, they're getting similar messages to what they received when we had the, the government shutdown and they're receiving messages that the IRS is backed up and, you know, it'll take quite some time to get a response from them. And, and that's not fair to the employer. They shouldn't be penalized for this. So we are working very hard to see if we can get some type of resolution there to provide some relief to employers. Yeah, and that has been a huge problem, especially here in California, all over the country. But as you know, um, I'm sure you, you're aware of this. Uh, our governor here basically has each county in its own color uh, coding system. And, um, you know, some counties haven't even been able to have their employees come back to work in, in a lot of industries. So it's been really, really a difficult thing here. Uh, as you were mentioning, they, they don't have people in the offices doing the things they're supposed to be doing. They have skeleton crew at best in, in-house and they just can't keep up. And it's and, and you're right, a lot of them cannot access their systems internally to be able to do the kind of reporting and, and to do the monthly tracking and so forth. And I know I've noticed that with my own clients, for example. So you're 100% on the money <laughs> accurate and those types of things, especially here in California. So yeah, a lot of a lot of things going on there. Well, let's talk about executive orders. And I know this is a difficult one because they're constantly being signed. And, and as you and I are, are talking and recording this, some additional ones came in just last night. I know after stimulus talks broke down, there were a lot of uh, executive orders uh, signed. And again, these new ones, um, there are also a lot of them related to prescription drug costs. Can you update us on these as best you can? 
Yes, it has been a whirlwind when it comes to executive orders. I feel like they're coming out almost as fast as President Trump is tweeting with with so many executive (laughs) orders over the past several months. I'll kind of separate them out between those that came out for um, COVID-19, those that came out for prescription drugs, and then a whole bucket that came out just this week on different issues regarding just healthcare. And so... You're 100% correct that he took action to try to um, do something because the stimulus talks were not successful in Congress. And so he released several executive orders and executive actions. And executive actions are a little bit different than executive orders. They're not as strong. And executive orders even in themselves do not carry the weight of law. So I do want to make sure to point that out. Oftentimes, they are are used to really state the opinion of the president and then to really put some pressure on Congress or other agencies to take action. And with executive orders, specifically with things that require rulemaking and agency action, those are more directives telling them that the president would like to see rules on something. And then when it comes to Congress... There's not as much of a, I'm telling you to do this and you have to do it kind of response there, but definitely puts some emphasis on Congress and and pressures them to act. And so that was the thought behind putting out these executive actions and orders on COVID-19. So one was for renters to prevent them from being evicted during this time. Another allowing relief on student loans that are held by the Federal Department of Education. And then some that were more related back to employers and I think are, are probably more interesting for the listeners would be the payroll tax deferment through an executive order. And this is one that I like to be very careful when I'm talking about, because I think even in industry news that you think is more cautious about how they're reporting things specific to compliance, I think hasn't always been reported 100% accurately for, for folks that are looking to be in compliance and which we hope everyone is. Um, wait, wait, wait. You're saying, you're saying that the press isn't accurate. I'm, 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 I'm absolutely surprised by that. Shocked. I know, I know you're shocked. <laughs> so this was, this was really talked about oftentimes in, and even leading up to the executive order. So I'll, I'll be a little more fair on them for that. But um, before the executive order, there was much, much more talk and it was, it was, payroll tax holiday. And you heard that word over and over again, holiday. And so then when this executive order came out, that term had really been embraced. And so again, when we look to strict compliance, this is not a payroll tax holiday. It's a payroll tax deferment. And so a lot of employees I know are asking their employers about this. And it's for those that earn $100,000 or less. And so employers are getting a little bit of pressure from their employees to provide this, this payroll tax deferral. And we want to make sure when employers are are talking to their employees about this, that they realize that this is going to be due later. These funds are going to be due later. So if they participate in deferring the payroll tax, those employees will be on the hook for that later down the line. And, And having that discussion of whether the employee feels comfortable knowing that they're kind of putting their taxes on a credit card, they're putting it off for later to pay off. And then another concern that I'm hearing from employers that are very cautious about participating in this is that what happens if you have an employee that has has decided that this is what they want to do, and then they leave the company 
is that employer going to be able to track them down and who's going to be responsible for those payroll taxes when they do become due? So a lot of questions on how this would work to make sure that everyone understands exactly how the system is is paying out, what your savings are and what your payments will be later on. So those were the biggies for the COVID-19 response executive orders. Then we had release of several prescription drug executive orders, some that were repeating some previous proposed rules that we have seen from the administration. So one was on drug reimportation and being able to import drugs from Canada. This was a proposed rule that we received last year. NAHU responded to that proposed rule earlier this year. And then actually last night, just a couple of hours ago, they released a final rule based on that proposed rule from last year. And so I'm in the midst of going through that now and determining if they made any vast changes to the proposed rule. And in in that piece, our comments were just making sure that with some of the programs that they were proposing to import drugs from Canada, there were some extra costs to doing so. Things like relabeling drugs and Oftentimes, it was relabeling drugs that were already in English, so it's not like, you know, we're, we're importing them from a French-Canadian area in Canada, you know, and, and it wasn't in, in English. And so there's a cost when we do that. And if the labels are already in English, why are we doing this if they meet the standards? Just little things like that that would we think would increase costs when this is an attempt to reduce costs on prescription drugs. And then also cautioning that, There are some exceptions already for individuals or small groups to be able to bring in drugs from Canada and we that work very well for for those individuals and small groups, especially some seniors. And we just want to make sure that with doing a broader um, regulation on this, that it doesn't hinder the ability of those people who are already practicing this lawfully to be able to continue to do it. And so, like I said, we'll be monitoring that final role and have something out to you all shortly. And then the other prescription drug executive orders looked at doing away with the rebating or Medicare kickback rules. This is something that was a proposed rule several years ago at the beginning of the Trump administration. And NEHU actually went in and met with several of our members and Secretary Azar, the Secretary of HHS, um, to talk about some of our concerns there. And it was really, you know, we definitely support trying to lower prescription drugs. We recognize that the rebating system is not the best system, but it it is the system we have, kind of the cards we've been dealt. And so the proposed rule didn't really have anything to replace it. And so we just cautioned against doing away with the rebating program without having something um, to go in place to really try to monitor those costs. And after that meeting, that proposed rule ended up being rescinded. So it was taken off of the books. And um, we're expecting to see a new proposed rule on that coming out as a result of the executive order. And then to round out the prescription drug executive orders, there were two others, one that would require um, the lowering the cost of certain insulin medications and others for the treatment of diabetes. And then the last one, which he actually released in July, and then they re-released it in September to address costs for both Medicare Part B and Part D 
um, originally it just listed Part B. And so you will notice that I'm, I'm saying Medicare a lot. A lot of these deal with Medicare prescription drug plans. And I, I will point that out just because it it won't affect the broader market in general um, right now as we wait for the, the proposed rules to come out as a result of the executive orders. But oftentimes Medicare is a market that we see um, a lot of, of kind of testing and experimentation in. For example, value-based design or reference-based pricing was first tested out there. And so we oftentimes see things tested there before going to the larger market. And, and that's why I point that out with these prescription drug executive orders. Finally, there is another a release of series of executive orders later in September, and these included things like surprise billing, um, requesting a ban on surprise billing, and the executive order asks for Congress to act by January 1 to do away with surprise billing, and then says that if Congress doesn't act by then, the president is asking the Secretary of HHS, Secretary Azar, to take action through rulemaking to ban surprise billing. And we can talk about the timeline a little bit later. I know we're going to talk about some of the issues in, um, and specifically surprise billing. So I'll give more detail on that in, in a couple of minutes. And then the other big executive order from the end of September was an executive order requesting protection for pre-existing conditions should the Supreme Court rule later in several months that the ACA is unconstitutional through the hearing of that Texas v. U.S. case that is challenging the individual mandate after the zeroing out of that in December of 2017 through that budget bill, and then also um, challenging the constitutionality of the ACA as a whole. And so because the Trump administration through the Justice Department has said that their interpretation and what they're arguing before the Supreme Court is that because of the action to zero out the individual mandate, it is now a true mandate and not a tax. And so they believe will invalidate the entire ACA and, and that it will be unconstitutional. And so with that goes pre-existing conditions and a number of other items from the ACA. And this through an executive order is, a, is an attempt to try to preserve that in light of what actions we may see down the line from the Supreme Court. And just a reminder, that case is set to be heard November 10th. And then the decision, um, however, is not expected until June of 2021. Yeah. Well, let's let's move to a different topic. The Democratic convention is over. Biden clinched the nomination, of course, and he has some support from some very big names in Washington. Can you fill us in on both the Democratic and Republican supporters at this time? Sure. And you're, you're correct. He has a lot of, lot of big names there. So he has, uh, Vice President Biden has received the support of almost all of the primary challengers that he had during the Democratic primary. So at the beginning of the year, obviously the pandemic had a huge impact on that and, and going towards the nomination of Vice President Biden. But then he's also had some Republicans that have voiced support for him. Several members of Congress already. And those in the House are all running for re-election right now. So a little bit dicey for some of them to come out in support of him instead of the president. 
and then some former Republican presidential candidates themselves. So people like John Kasich um, from Ohio that ran for president a couple of years ago, um, obviously challenging Trump at that time. It's interesting to see where people are are falling and where they're pledging their support on the presidential ticket. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting election cycle for sure. What types of policies has Biden unveiled to appeal to the more progressives? Well, we've seen a little bit of, of, of a shift here, and that is something that happens every election cycle. So I want to, to say that. And oftentimes when we're going through the primary debates and the parties are trying to select who will be their presidential candidate, we see candidates on both sides of the aisle shifting very far out to, to be either very liberal or very conservative during the primaries. And then we see them shifting a bit after a nomination has been finalized and confirmed. And they shift a bit back to the to the base, back to the moderates, which is also a way to try to cross over and possibly get um, support from some moderates on the other side of the aisle. So we have seen a bit of that and specifically with healthcare, things like looking at where Biden is on the ACA, interest in a public option, interest in opening up Medicare, and not quite talking about Medicare for all, but lowering the age for qualifying for Medicare or being or even being able just to choose to, to opt into Medicare, um, not necessarily being required to, and and then things like the public option and others. So we, we have seen a little bit of a downshift there and then pledging, of course, to support and uphold the ACA and continue to expand on that. Yeah. And to continue that line of thought for just a moment, of course, we all know that Biden selected someone that we are very familiar with here in California, Kamala Harris, as his uh, vice president candidate, his running mate. Um, she pretty much checked a lot of boxes for the Democrats. She's a woman, she's a person of color, someone who's been a bit more progressive with much more liberal views than Biden. Um, a lot of conservatives in California are worried about this because we know Kamala Harris has been pretty liberal uh, over the years. Uh, is she expected to balance the ticket? And will this help the appeal to more moderate voters or more progressive voters? What do you think might happen here? I, I do think it balances the ticket out a bit when we when we talk about liberal versus progressive, um, and and not just all of all of the other items that you you mentioned, gender, background, all of those things, um, even age, um, we can put in there as a way of of balancing this out and, and being different than Biden. And then because she ran very similarly on on a lot of issues to. Bernie Sanders, I think this is a way for Vice President Biden to kind of give an olive branch over to those very liberal voters and try to bring them in to the fold and bring them onto the ticket or at least get them out to vote. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Kamala Harris and her healthcare positions. And if you think her views are going to sway the views of Biden, who has reported many times that he wants to continue and strengthen Obamacare, what are your thoughts on this? So, Again, I'll use the example I used earlier for Kamala when we talk about where she discussed um, healthcare in the primaries. And she was very liberal, aligning with Sanders. We saw Harris talking about universal healthcare, talking about single payer, talking about Medicare for all, sometimes using those terms interchangeably. And you all know I'm very passionate about making sure we're using our words correctly and not interchanging them um, when they when they don't mean the same thing. And so it, it seemed almost as though at one point, 
during the primaries, one of her staffers brought her over and, and did a, a tutorial or a brush up on, on healthcare policy to make sure she was using those correctly. Because we, we did see a realignment there where, where there was a shift and she seemed to feel more comfortable talking about what Medicare for all would be under the Sanders plan. And, and with that, though, knowing where she stands, knowing where she was talking about this, knowing we're going into the the larger election. So we're not in the primaries anymore. We do know we're going to see a, a backing off again from appealing to those, you know, on the outskirts of the party, perhaps. But we also know that Vice President Biden is very passionate about Obamacare, very passionate about the ACA and continuing to uphold it, um, trying to put back into law some pieces that were taken out during the Trump administration, either through regulation or through court challenges and, and other things. And so this is really one of the issues that Vice President Biden feels that he is an expert in. This is, you know, a feather in his cap. And so with Harris on the ticket, it's not likely that she will sway him on health care because this is something that he obviously has a track record on. Um, so we're not going to see him flip-flop here or expand his views um, very widely. I think she she will be able to impact him on, on other areas of policy, but not, not here. Although we will see Vice President Biden in his platform. He does, like I mentioned earlier, talk about public option. But I think we're going to see even that being backed down on as we get closer to November and then even into a, a potential presidency. Well, thank you very much for that. That's, uh, we do appreciate your thoughts on that. We're about out of time for part one of this podcast. Marcy, thank you so much. We're going to continue this uh, very soon here with part two. So thanks, Marcy. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. With permission, this podcast has been edited from its original version for use by the California Association of Health Underwriters. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. CAHU members are encouraged to visit the California Association of Health Underwriters website at kahu.org for more information and updates.